thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. And you are joined by the naked scientist, Chris Smith. A very good morning to you, Chris. Morning, Kino. How are you doing? Always good, sir. Even better when I'm chatting to you. I get mesmerized by your knowledge. So everybody else does as well. So people can call in if you're listening to us. If there's a question about the world and you believe that there's possibly a scientific answer to that question, put that question to us on 21 Double four six zero five six seven, and you can also add us to WhatsApp on zero seven two five six seven one five six seven. Chris, let me throw one out there, and it's got to do with the brain. What makes and and it's in relation to a discussion I've just had with our national minister of education, where in grade nine, standard seven, they will issue a certificate, and people, young people, can then go into different streams. Now, there are different education systems around the world that do that as well, but what? makes young people, anybody, more creative versus, let's say, academic. Um, Because some people are saying you're either academic or you're creative, uh, but very rarely a mix of both. Can you give us some insights into that and how the brain works? Yeah, well, I can certainly try. In your brain, there's 100 billion plus nerve cells. And there's also probably five times that many non-nerve cells. And this aggregation together forms this jelly-like mass that we call a human brain. But the amazing thing about it is that that forms from just a small number, a handful of stem cells. And it puts itself together following a rough plan, a bit like building a cabinet from Ikea. You get these instructions and you interpret them. And you put together your cabinet where your brain puts itself together by following an instruction book in your DNA. But it forms a blank canvas. It's literally like a blank piece of paper with some vague outlines on it that you could follow. And on that blank canvas with those vague outlines, you then through your life's experience, through education and making the choices you do and having the experiences and practicing of things, you paint that canvas to have the picture you want it to have on it so our brain is a very plastic thing and the amazing thing about the brain is that the brain you go to bed with tonight is not the brain you woke up with this morning because it's continuously being updated changed molded fashioned by your day-to-day experiences humans and many animals are amazing at learning things and the thing is that what makes you good at learning things is the connections that are formed between different parts of the brain and the brain has different regions specialized for doing different things and the density of the connections between those different areas endows you with particular skills so if you have particularly rich connections between the part of the brain that connects the decoding center for language and the part of the brain that expresses language then you're very good at linguistics if you have very very good connections between the parts of the brain that plan complicated movements and the parts of the brain that execute those movements and make your fingers dance across a computer keyboard or a musical instrument you're very fast and very good at doing those things and processing tasks relevant to those things. And the more you use it, the less you lose it, and the more those connections grow. So basically, to answer your question in a shorthand way, we are all genetically different. Therefore, the blank canvas that we're inheriting has been slightly differently put together in every single one of us. 
and the potential is there in every single one of us and the dice are slightly loaded in terms of how that brain's going to mold and fashion itself and mm. after that chance takes over and you make it what you will and your life experiences are crucial so there's a degree of of nature there but there's an enormous amount of nurture too and that's why education an education that's strong investment from a young age is really critical because your brain is only that fluid and plastic meaning you can learn a language in literally days you can't do that when you get older so you have to make the most of it when you're when you're little and that sets the tone for the rest of your life so you then also have the emotional center of the brain or or at least well part of it is the I think they call it the limbic system where you've got the amygdala which does your fight, your flight and, and and fright and then you get the hippocampus that also stores and stores memories right um and 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 some people are saying people who are more creative I would imagine then would have a denser mass within that limbic system a mass a a denser um, connection uh, within the limbic system. Would that be right? You can do something called connectivity mapping. And this is done using an MRI scanner, magnetic resonance imaging. You put a person into the scanner and you stimulate them with various tasks that particularly engage certain parts of the brain. And you can use the scanner statistically to say, well, when this bit of the brain becomes active, what other bits of the brain also become active at statistically roughly the same time? And you can begin to map out how the different brain areas are talking to each other. And that enables you to gauge the bandwidth that connects them. And as you know, with your internet connection, the more bandwidth you have, the more information you can exchange quickly. And that's what sets apart different brain functions being processed quickly versus slowly. The limbic system is a very ancestral part of the brain. It's very old, uh, as in we've inherited this from creatures that are very ancient. It's very concerned with navigation interacting with the environment, remembering your way around places, but equally with reacting to danger and remembering when to react to danger and when things are not dangerous. So yes, it's at the heart of your emotional centre and very quickly you sort of you send or you, you send messages from that area through the filter of higher brain areas that then say, well, should I be reacting like this? Should I be looking offended when that person says something out of turn? Or should I just ignore them? And so what we've got that other creatures don't is this higher level of filtering. So we have these ancient areas of the brain that feed our reactions up through them. They filter off the things that will probably get us into trouble, um, and, unless you're Donald Trump. And, uh, and that area of the brain is slightly absent in him. But then they then manifest as your behaviour. Oh, you're listening to Dr. Chris Smith, also known as the Naked Scientist, with you until 10. So any questions about the world around you, if you want to, want to find out the scientific answer to that, well, he can certainly try his best. Let's start with Keith in Hart Bay. Hi, Keith. Good morning. Morning. Ask your question, morning. sir. Good morning. Yeah, I'm a medical doctor, and as a medical student, we were taught that colds are caused by adenoviruses and flu is caused by influenza viruses. But these days, everybody says we, they've got the flu, and very often they've just got a cold. And in that respect, your take on the role of influenza vaccines, wherein historically they've always mutated somewhere else, Hong Kong, Singapore, but never in Cape Town. Your take on that too, please. 
Ah, wonderful mm. question. Morning, morning. Chris? Well, the other question, the other aspect of this is, you know, what is the common cold? And the common cold isn't just one entity. The common cold is hundreds of different viruses. There are viruses called adenoviruses. There are about 45 to 50 of them that affect humans. A good half of those can cause cold-like symptoms in us. But there are hundreds of rhinoviruses, the viruses that cause a runny nose and headache. And there are also about 100 enteroviruses. And that's before you even embark on looking at things like parainfluenza viruses and human metanumoviruses and coronaviruses. So there are literally hundreds of things that come under the umbrella of the common cold. And then sitting alongside that are this very specific group of viruses which come under the family of the, the orthomyxoviruses, and that's where influenza is found. And influenza has only really been a problem for humans for a matter of thousands of years. Of course, humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. So why is it that flu has only been a problem more recently? And this is because flu is by origin, an infection of birds, and specifically aquatic birds, things like geese. And in those animals, flu is an infection of their intestines. So these birds catch it, they do get a bit snotty and a runny nose, but they poo out loads of viruses into the water they're living in. And then other birds who are feeding and swimming around in that water pick up those viruses, and that's the life cycle of the virus. And once there were sufficient numbers of humans on Earth to actually maintain a transmission chain for influenza, because it's an acute infection, you catch it, you become very ill, you become very infectious, you pass it on to somebody else, and then you become either dead or better. And when you're better, you're immune to that particular type of virus for the rest of your life. So there has to be a threshold number of infectable people on Earth so a transmission chain can be maintained. And because we become immune to the flu once we've caught it, the virus has to undergo a continual process of evolution. This is called genetic drift, where small changes to the genome, the genetic makeup of the virus, subtly change its shape, its configuration and its appearance to the immune system so that you can keep catching flu A year on year on year, but you're catching a slightly variant or different form of it. And, and the virus is a moving target because it has to be. And though, where, does it, where does it change and evolve? It changes and evolves as it goes from person to person. Because if the virus grows in you, it makes loads of genetic spelling errors because it's got an error-prone system for copying its genetic information. So the virus that actually you catch is not the virus that you pass on to somebody else because you will mutate it and change it slightly when you hand it on. Many of these mutants are useless and they just disappear, but some are very efficient at spreading and they spread more. And those are the ones that then make this enormous circuit of the globe taking a year to do it and they tend to arrive in any given geography coinciding with the winter in that geography. So there's that progressive process of evolution of the virus year on year around the world, and that's why flu keeps coming back, and it's evolving everywhere. Keith, happy with that, eh? Yeah, very good answer, thanks. Here we go. That's Dr. Keith Arden-Hart. Let's go to Martin in Seapoint. Hi, Martin. Good morning. Hi, um, my question is, you know, we know that the Earth takes 365 days to rotate around the sun, and that equals to one year. But now, at what stage in human sort of society was that determined because in many newspapers one reads a column today in history and they give like the year 120 BC where something happened or in the year 53 when something happened were they, they weren't so developed at that stage uh, to, to determine you know one year to the next Okay, Chris you got that? Yeah, now I'm not a historian, so forgive me if I use a little bit of artistic license and, and a slight bit of hand-waviness here, and there will be people who know this answer much better than me. But the bottom line is that 
our ancestors lived and died by what the environment did to them. There were no shops. There were no central heating to warm your house up when it was cold in winter. You had to know what the earth was doing around you. You had to live alongside nature and know nature inside out if you were going to stand any chance of survival. And one of the things that people knew was the best guide to what nature was doing was what the stars were doing because they knew that these stars change uh, across the year and they had nothing else to disturb them at night time. They could gaze up at these beautiful, unspoiled, unmarred night skies because there wasn't light pollution. And, for instance, there's there's a lot of Aboriginal folklore. If you talk to Aborigine, uh, Aborigines in Australia, they will tell you all about when the emu is in the Milky Way, you know that that's the time to go hunting the eggs and it appears to have this configuration at certain times of the year. So people people understood very well nature, they understood how the stars would have changed, and the ancient Greeks named the planets the planets because the word planetes means wanderers, and they realised there were stars that wandered differently to the other stars in the uh, universe. So they knew that there had to be some kind of interesting movement and planetary motion going on. At the time, they thought that the Earth was at the centre of the universe and, and everything else went uh, around the Earth. Uh, Ptolemy and, and the epicycles phenomenon, for example, from a few thousand years ago. But the fact is, people knew this stuff. They knew there were these cycles and they'd logged them and documented them in excruciating detail. So they actually knew all about the the, the fact that the Earth must be turning and rotating. And uh, I think it was... Um, Eratosthenes, who actually measured the radius of planet Earth and knew it was a ball thousands of years ago and did it with the most amazing experiment in Egypt. So people had a pretty good insight, actually, into all of this right from the get-go, I think probably driven by the fact that you lived and died by what nature did to you. So if you understood it, you had a much greater chance of success. Well, let's move on to Nick. Nick in Somerset West, and here's a question about the Hadron Collider. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Good morning. I would like to know if the Hadron Collider has detected other dimensions yet. That's a uh, simple question. Hi, there we go. <laughs> yeah, very simple one. The answer is, Nick, that uh, that's not really what it's trying to do. Um, I mean, the the reason that it, it exists is to create high um, energy collisions between particles. And why we're doing that is that the rationale is that the Earth is made of elements. Those elements are atoms. We thought that, and the, the name atom comes from the Greek tomos, atomos, meaning can't be cut down further because people thought that the atom was the smallest fundamental unit of what things were made of. And then people realised if you give them enough energy and smash them together, you can break them up into subatomic particles. And then they did experiments where if you give even more energy to things, you can break up the subatomic particles to fundamental particles that make up those subatomic particles. So, for instance, quarks make up protons and neutrons, for example, and there's also electrons there as well. And so what they're trying to do there is to understand the fabric of and the nature of matter. Now, it might well be that that does give us some insights into whether other dimensions exist. And there is some physics that's exploring how particles behave and how their energies can be explained and how their relationships to each other can be explained. And those may give insights or enable us to test hypotheses about whether there are other uh, different dimensions because you can look at look for disparities in the way these things behave and you can only explain that if there might be for instance another dimension with a particle doing something in another dimension that we can't directly interact with but the the large hadron collider is not trying to create those dimensions it's trying to test hypotheses that might point towards their existence but at the moment 
all this stuff remains theoretical. And what we think that, that we've got at the moment is uh, an explanation about why things have mass, and that was the Higgs boson. And they're now upping the energy to see if we can disclose any more new physics. But at the moment, the, a lot of this stuff is just very complicated theories, and there's no direct evidence for it. And we've got another one you have from DJ. DJ says, um, why should we be concerned about the 1.5 or 2 degree increase in climate when the weather changes by much more every day? And what would the impact of 2 degrees warming mean for the average person on the street? Yeah, I think climate scientists could uh, do more to explain this because they don't make this clear. When people are talking about a one and a half or a two degree change in temperature, they're not talking about the temperature today in Cape Town or the temperature today in London. They're talking about the global mean temperature. In other words, if you took all the temperatures everywhere around the Earth, added them all together and divided by the number of readings to get the average, what they're saying is that with present trends, the average temperature will now be two degrees or one and a half degrees or whatever number we're, we're going for, higher than it was in history. In other words, there's more energy in the Earth system and so the global mean temperature has now become higher. Superimposed on that mean temperature, of course, is going to be a day-night cycle, there's going to be a seasonal cycle and, and departures brought in by random weather problems. But why we worry about this is that if the Earth's overall temperature increases, the Earth is in equilibrium and there's a certain amount of energy coming in from the sun and the planet is radiating some of that energy back out into space and the amount or rate at which it's lost into space is determined by factors such as how much ice there is to reflect the light back off into space, how much cloud cover there is to reflect light into space and to trap heat close to the ground, and what the composition of our atmosphere is. The more water there is in the atmosphere, the more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, the more heat we're going to trap. And if we trap more heat, then we change how much ice is there, and that means we trap how much heat we radiate, uh, we affect how much heat we radiate back into space, we affect how warm the oceans are. And if you've got a warmer world, World, there's more energy overall in the system and therefore there's more energy behind weather systems and therefore you can get more catastrophic weather and that may have a major problem for people who live in coastal areas for example. So that is why people are worried about this because two degrees doesn't sound like much but in energy terms it's a huge increase in the overall energy in the system and therefore has the potential a to cause dramatic ice melting that could translate into metres of sea level rise. At the moment they're talking about between 80 centimetres and a metre of sea level rise over the next 100 years, which is enough to completely bury underwater m many islands that are, people, that are inhabited by lots of people in many places. It will lead to storm surges which will wash coastal settlements away. It will make certain areas of the ocean non-productive, so people who depend on the ocean for uh, their, their existence, whether that's just f fishing or whether it's gathering other natural resources, their life will become untenable. So the consequences will become absolutely huge and that's just around the oceans then you've got to consider the fact that people who live on land their rainfall will change because of those sorts of patterns crops will and won't grow in certain areas if people are forced to move the diseases that, that people have will go with those people if animals are forced to move they'll take those diseases that they can inflict on people with them so there could be all kinds of consequences and this giant domino effect that uh, we need to prepare for because inevitably the, ch the climate does change and we might be accelerating the rate at which that change is going to happen so we need to be aware of this and do what we can to mitigate it now peter asks can memory be improved um interesting question because 
what is memory? Well, memory is the ability of you to recall information. And the way we store information in the brain is in short-term and long-term memory. And there are also different forms of memory. You have memories for sounds, you have memories for touching, you have memories for, uh, for example, specific facts and figures, and then you have memories for what you did at what time of what day. By and large, you probably can improve all of those sorts of memories with practice. But superimposed on that is the ageing process. And, uh, you know, we're all getting older all the time. And as you get older, your brain becomes more rigid and less able to assimilate new information. So I'd say that, yes, you can improve memory. You can improve memory by developing techniques so that you don't forget things. And this can include writing things down, rehearsing things. So, for instance, when I meet somebody, I always make sure I uh, say their name back to them because then I've heard myself say it and I'm doubling my chances of remembering their name because I know that I said, hello, Kino, and not only have I got your face in my face memory and your name next to it, I've also then got a phonological, an audio memory of me saying your name and you can double your chances of remembering things. So those are sorts of tricks that you can use to increase the memory bandwidth for certain sorts of things and, wow. and therefore you have a high likelihood of getting to recall them. Well, Bruce, that was brilliant. Uh, sorry, Chris. Uh, I need work on the memory front, I've got to tell you. You're going to have to help me with that. <laughs> Dr. Chris Smith, always a pleasure, Chris. Looking forward to next week. And by the way, people want to check out the work you're doing, your, your website, please. Yeah, go to nakedscientist.com because we've actually been going 20 years as of next year. And oh, we were wow. one of the first podcasts ever to exist. So there's about a thousand plus podcasts on nakedscientist.com now. They're all free. And we've got the transcripts to most of them, all the scientific references for things. So it's a, it's a great learning resource. And so in our 20th year, um, we're having a you know, big, big sort of international conversation around how wonderful science is and where it's come from too. So do come and check out nakedscientist.com. You get all the content for free for the last 20 years of scientific endeavor. Love it. Thank you very much for your time, Chris, as always. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.